everybody, this is Basil. And this is Gons. Face Like the Sun YouTube channel. <laughs> As if not everybody already knows about that. What are you um, talking God. about? There might be some people out there that have no idea what that whole thing meant. Okay, so do is everybody out there, go to YouTube, go to Face Like the Sun YouTube channel. That is Gonz's YouTube channel. You can get a bunch of great videos. He does almost daily videos, right? Yes, almost daily. And and here, here's the real goal here. I want a silver play button from YouTube. And That's a thing? Yeah, it's a thing. And if you get 100,000 subscribers, you get there. And right now I'm at 85,500. Wow. Very nice. Yeah. Okay. So, so <laughs> there's Gonza's plug. <laughs> and my plug <laughs> is, as some of you might already know, I uh, have started a U new YouTube channel. Yes. Everybody has been asking me about that, if I have one or if I'm starting one. So I just did it, everybody. And it's quite, it's quite, it's, it's called, it's called the joy spiracy theory, the joy spiracy theory. And what it is, is a channel devoted to those of you who know about the truth, you're awake, you see all the deception, you see all the shady nonsense going around, and you know maybe you're feeling a little sad, maybe you're feeling a little depressed, anxious, uh, basically the great deceptions got you really bummed out. And uh, so I started a YouTube channel to combat that. A lot of practical tips that I've used in my own life to get my joy back after doing a bunch of Canary Cry episodes. So I really want you guys to go check it out. It's called The Joy Spiracy Theory and go to YouTube. There's also thejoyspiracytheory.com. Subscribe, like me on Facebook. Uh, you guys, I, I really hope you'll be touched by that. And I think everybody needs a little bit of The Joy Spiracy Theory. Hey, Gons. Face like this on YouTube channel. <laughs> We're having a plug war. Plug war. You shall not pass! Tolkien tells us in Appendix B that Gandalf is a Maya, or a servant of the gods. And in the text, Gandalf significantly describes himself as, at one stage, having been sent back to Middle-earth. And in the mythology of Middle-earth, it's interesting because Sauron is also a very powerful Maya. But Sauron was in the service to Melkor, who's a kind of Lucifer figure, to borrow the, the Christian analogy. He fell from grace and he became Morgoth. Blade is of elvish make, which means it will glow blue when orcs or goblins are nearby. And welcome to Canary Cry Radio. My name's Basil. And this is Gons. Welcome to episode number 101. 
101 is one more than our 100th episode. We're still going. We didn't stop. We're in triple digits. That's good. That's true. So, anyway, what are we talking about now? 101. You know, when we do 101s in, like, school, it's the basics, right? It's the foundation. It's the... Are we just waxing philosophical now? No, this isn't philosophical. This is educational. All right. So, basically, when we think about 101, we often think the basics... And one of the foundational basics to what Canary Cry Radio represents and what we talk about here has been laid down by a guy named Dr. Mike Heiser. And a lot of us researchers and authors and stuff like that have gleaned off of Dr. Mike Heiser's work. So if this is your first Canary Cry Radio episode, it's a really good one because you'll get a good idea of where some of the foundational things that we talk about come from, from a scholar, not just armchair researchers like we are. I'm not going to go through all the detailed introductions because you can find that on episode number 40 and episode number 81. He's the man, the myth, and the legend, and we're going to cover all three in today's discussion. Brother Mike, how you doing, buddy? Very good. Thanks for having me back on. That's Dr. Mike to you, Gons. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, don't you forget it. <laughs> yeah. Well, here you are. You're part of the three-peat club now. Oh, boy. You're, you're in the, the three-episode category in our guests. Yeah, so the upper con- echelon. Man. Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> we also just had you on our episode 100, so that was fun. You helped us uh, take over the world in respect to that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I haven't seen any benefit from that yet. But <laughs> oh well, you know, just wait. The checks in the mail. Right. Right. <laughs> I hope Jim Mars is listening because, after all, I am a government disinformation agent. That's oh, right. I, good I old actually, Jimmy Mars. Yep. It was in. Uh, I believe it was in the book Our Culted History. Yeah. By Jim Mars, where he uh, brought you up. It was interesting. Right. I, wow. I almost jumped out of my seat. I was like, no way. He did not just do that. In he, black he, gave, he gave incorrect information that could have been resolved with a phone call. So, so much for his research skills. Yeah. Wow. Well, he doesn't really source a lot of his information either. So, uh, no, he it's, doesn't. It's, it's good. Uh, you know, it's, it's sensational uh, writing, but, you know, I, I, I'm i not going to put too much stock in what Jim Maher says over uh, Dr. Mike Heiser, but... Uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. I mean, I, you know, it's one of my, one of my life goals was being a government disinformation. <laughs> <laughs> I know, we're kind of just uh, floating on our Illuminati shill members yeah, they're, right they're, now, <laughs> so... Something for me to work forward to, I guess. Yeah. 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 So last time we talked, you had a new book coming out. But we talked, or we talked about uh, in your episode eighty-one, you had a new book coming out. Yeah, and and then in one hundred, you were talking about like four or five other books coming out. <laughs> so well, they're they're little, you know. They don't expect don't expect uh, anything the length of Unseen Realm, but yeah. Okay, well, why don't you let us know how, how's everything going with that? It's going well. I mean, I can't uh, can't complain. I'm just trying to again transition still uh, to the uh, to the next thing. You know, I I have plenty of lists of things I want to do, but you, you just have to land somewhere and then have something take traction or get traction. Right, right. So this book's called The Unseen Realm, mm-hmm. and uh, I've been looking on your website here. And it says recovering the supernatural worldview of the Bible which seems like a pretty exciting prospect to me. 
Yeah, well, the, the wording is deliberate, and you know, I think uh, to to certain readers would be inflammatory, which is a good thing. Yeah, uh, because recovering means well, we've lost it, and yeah, you have. Uh, mm. You know, I I can't really put it any more bluntly or honestly uh, than that, because the church has largely sort of, you know, that the academic term here is demythologized uh, the Bible. And I, I think the nicer way to, to put it, but again, still fairly blunt, is that most Christians are selectively supernatural. Right. Uh, they, they, they embrace the things that they need to believe, or else why are we even talking about Christianity or even theism? Mm-hmm. And then they, they more or less let the, uh, the rest of the stuff just, you know, fall to the ground or they kick it to the curb and, you know, they come up with comfortable explanations that appear workable. Again, if you don't take that passage and, you know, work it into any others or even look at where those passages bleed into other passages, if you just keep them in isolation, then we come up with nice, safe, comfortable interpretations that allow us to put this or that passage on the shelf and away we go. Right. And that's pretty much the way that the, the, the church operates when it comes to what a biblical writer really would have been thinking in all sorts of, you know, strange, you know, passages. Yeah. And it seems like, um, you know, I love the book by the way. And I, it, I know that you had been working on, you know, this sort of incarnation of your, uh, you know, I guess a magnum opus style of just all your research that you've done into a condensed, you know, something that people can consume. You also have the actual book titled supernatural, which is more for the Mm -hmm. scholarly, if I'm not mistaken. Um, well, it's the it's the reverse. Uh, Unseen realm is the is the one with footnotes. Oh, okay. You know, it's it's the academic book, but people are surprised because it's actually readable. It doesn't read like a textbook. Right. You know, and and again, the Amazon reviews. I, I like to see that happen too. Oh, I was intimidated. I thought this would you know just be too much for me, but holy cow, I actually understood what I read. Right. right. You know that kind of thing. And supernatural is the distillation okay. of unseen oh, realm. It it's way. it's just the. No, it, it supernatural doesn't have a single footnote. In fact, I should tell you guys, you'll love this. My my instructions, <laughs> my instructions for writing supernatural. I mean, that wasn't my idea. The other one was was you know what I what I wanted to produce, but the publisher said no. You need a companion volume to you know quote put the cookies on the lower shelf. You know for people. <laughs> Who, who don't like, you know, to read, you know, <laughs> academic material. So my I instructions like were, <laughs> <laughs> well, you, I don't, I don't know if you like these instructions. Because <laughs> okay. It just feels kind of bad, but they said, look, okay, here are your instructions. No footnotes, no argumentation. Okay. And don't give people like all of the interpretive options. Just, and this is a direct <laughs> quote, just say it. And they will believe it. <laughs> oh no! And I'm like, are you serious? Because <laughs> that that just really felt creepy, you know. Yeah. But, but their, their their thing was, look, this is the way, and and they honestly they're right. You know, this is the way trade books that show up in Christian bookstores are written. Yeah. Right. Nobody goes in there for academic content. I've had, I've had Christian, I've had CEOs of bookstore chains and publishers tell me that no one goes into one of our stores or a Christian bookstore looking for content. Huh. Wow. And, and to me, that that's that's wonderfully honest, but it's also an indictment. 
Yeah, well, that's very interesting, actually. I I almost feel this interview starting to go in the direction of an investigative report on the (laughs) dark insides of Christian bookstores. Well, you know, people go to, uh, I mean, have I ever given you guys my theory of Christian Middle Earth? Nope. Give it to us now, baby. Okay. okay this this will be the, uh, the the first airing. I mean, I've given this to, to lots of people individually, but you this will be a this will be a scoop for you guys. Okay. 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 <laughs> so Perfect. my theory of Christian Middle Earth it, it helps me parse all of this kind of discussion. So here here we go. Believing Christianity actually functions and operates in three realms. There's the realm at the top. That's the, the the scholarly realm. This is where the scholars, you know, do their thing. And most of the people in that realm, again, the scholars, do what they do only for themselves and the people in their own guild. Now they're aware of the bottom realm. Okay, they're aware of that realm, and that's the realm of the lay person, the the the, the pastor and the normal, you know, Christian, the person in the pew. So that the top realm is aware of the lower realm, the lowest realm, because they train their pastors. They have you know guys in seminary. They they send them off, and then they they pastor churches. But most of what scholars do, they have no interest in writing directly for the people in the bottom realm, the normal person. Right. Now down in the in the in that realm, again you have the pastor and the lay person. Now that realm, the, some people in that realm, namely the pastor, they know that the top realm exists because they went to seminary or they've they've read a textbook or whatever. But most of the laity have no idea who's who the real scholars are, what they do what they're about. They don't know what a journal is. They, you know, they just don't know any of this stuff. And they're content to stay where they're at. You know, I, I go to church because I like the coffee and the person sitting next to me. You know, it's about fellowship to them, Bible. You know, most people in the, in, the, in the church, Bible reading is Bible study, which of course it isn't. Right. But that's, that's, that's where they're at. You know, they, they, they know they're believers and, you know, they're, they're used to the self-help sermons and all that kind of stuff. So that, that, that's where they are. Now, a lot of those people, though, you, you have a handful in every church, is, is what I believe, that, that get discontent. Mm. They know intuitively, or they discover somehow, that there's a lot they're not being taught. Mm. And they get bored, or they get disenchanted, or disillusioned. And, you know... What do they do? They, they they don't quite know what to do. Some of them just quit the faith. They have questions that never get answered. So they really grow suspicious, you know, of, of the, the leadership in the church. And they, they may sit there because, well, you know, my wife and my kids are here or, you know, I got to keep my husband happy or whatever, you know, so that, so they, they sort of suffer through it, but they know they are not being fed. They know they're not being mm. taught. What a lot of them, since they don't know the upper realm, what happens is a lot of these people mentally, if not literally, leave the church and they go to Middle Earth. Okay, the, the middle realm. And the, there are some people in the middle realm that are so hungry and tenacious in, in their Bible study that they become leaders in Middle Earth. I put somebody like Chuck Missler here. They, they emerge as leaders within this middle realm, the realm between the scholarly realm and between the normal church right. realm. 
and and they be, they become the leaders. They become to the to the people in Middle Earth. They become the scholars when they're not really scholars, but they become the the leaders. And and many of them do wonderful things. And I put Missler in that category, even though I think he believes some, you know, flaky things, and, and you know, wouldn't wouldn't agree with him. For the most part, this guy has has served the Lord and is gonna is gonna reap the reward. You know, with when he goes to be with the Lord and, and all that stuff. He, this is a good guy. But you also have Saruman's mm. in middle. <laughs> you also have people that just drift off into heresy, or it becomes about them. They start building their own fiefdoms. Right. They start manipulating the people that drift into Middle Earth, and and there's 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 it's good and evil, you know, going on in in, in Middle Earth, but the people in Middle Earth, the masses in Middle Earth that 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 find their way there, they don't really know how to parse a lot of this stuff because they don't right. know that hey, there's this other realm at the top where I could get my question answered, or I could read this book, I could read this article. They just don't even know the material exists, right. and so the the leaders in Middle Earth become the the gatekeepers of knowledge for the for the the, the people who know they're not being taught. They're not going to go back to the church because they weren't taught. They're going to stay here in Middle Earth, and 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 Middle Earth exists again largely on the internet. So you have a lot of people who have their own podcasts, their own they organize their own conferences, they self publish, you know they have their own uh, websites, their own blogs. They become Become little little sort of cottage industries or little little quote you know seminaries or universities all on their own, right? And, and they and they become the gatekeepers of knowledge for the people who who desperately want content and and, and it's just a free for all. It's just a, an academic wild west. If and I they kind of have the choice to be uh, Sarumans or yep. Gan Gandalfs. Yeah. Now now it's funny you should bring up Gandalf. I am Gandalf. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to see if I could. I'm Gandalf, and here's why. Okay. It's not because I'm a wizard. I'm Gan Think about what Gandalf does. Okay. I am aware of all three of these realms, and I pop into each whenever I want, and I make a little trouble, and then I leave. <laughs> okay. I am Gandalf. <laughs> it's pretty Gandalfy. It's it's very Gandalfy. I'm not a king anywhere. I'm not a lord anywhere. I just pop in and leave. <laughs> and, and, and that's what I do. And I know all of these realms exist. And so I, I, I make contributions to all of them or again, stir up trouble in all of them. And I'm content to do that. I, I, I like my role. Right. So that, that, that's just what it is. But, you know, there are very few scholars whose content ever filters down to the bottom realm occasionally you'll have some that blog and so they part of their content is on middle earth and and even fewer write intentionally for either middle earth or god forbid the lower realm right and and this is the situation we have now, i am very sympathetic to christian middle earth because again there's a lot of nonsense in christian middle earth there's a lot of bad teaching in christian middle earth but you can find really good content in christian middle earth but i i am sympathetic to it for one reason these people care about content right they want to be taught they just they're doing the best they can with what they know is out there the problem is what they don't know is out there. So, I, you know, this is why I'm, I'm sort of amused. Again, my little Gandalf role here. 
when I, I see on a website or I hear in an interview, oh, scholars, you're just mystified by this thing. And like, like you think you've come across something that no one's thought about or seen before. Right. Well, actually, I could lay 2,000 pages on your desk about that. <laughs> that you don't know exists because you right. are not aware. Or if you have become aware of the top realm, you are wanting to keep people ignorant because you want them to follow you. Right, right. Okay, and and again, this is where I get to make trouble, and then I, I got to leave and go to the other realm for a while. I feel I'll like that's back. what you're doing right now. <laughs> <laughs> Look, this is just the way it is. Okay? Right. This metaphor orients me to... to for for what I do, I, I gave Tom Horn this metaphor, and he he loved it. He said he said, "You bet, I'm in Middle Earth, and I'm there deliberately." <laughs> and, and it's like it's like, yeah, you are, you know, and 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 you know, we're we're friends, you know. So he's right. like, I know some of what I do, you think is crazy, and and he's right, but but I love the guy because yeah. he is doing his darndest to give people some content, yeah. you know, yeah. and and I I admire those people. We, we, we've got to have those people because I think, you know, again, you, you can just go off on some weird tangent. That's, that, that, that's true. But the alternative is basically starving where right, you're at. Yeah. So yeah. you might eat something that makes you fat or that makes you sick for a while, whatever. You're at least not starving. Right. Right. Because that's what's going to happen to you in the lower realm. Because I hate to say it, but most people don't go to church looking for content. Or even thinking they're going to get it, yeah. right? They they just don't. And and Middle Earth is the sweet spot. That I actually view my audience. If if I have a quote audience, it lives for the most part in Middle Earth. Right. Now I'm respected in the in the top realm. I get asked to do papers. I get asked to write this or that. Got a bunch of those in my inbox, by the way. It's just it's something else to worry about. Some, something else to like not do. <laughs> <laughs> For at least for a while, but but I, I'm I'm just really sympathetic to the person in Middle Earth that wants to learn something, and they're just doing the best they well, can. It feels like you just just the way you describe the whole analogy there. It, it's kind of like my whole experience of walking into a mm -hmm. church, uh, you know, being in that lower realm, but then quickly realizing that there's a lot more to the Bible, to oh, yeah. Christianity, everything right. else, and not getting the answers or even being shunned. You know, I know Basil and I can relate to that at, at you know, the church we were at. Yep. And, uh, but the thing that I think I did was I was that guy that wandered into middle earth, not knowing what's going on. And, and I yep, was quickly, right. I quickly saw that there are Saruman's out there, you know, that there, that there are some things that are way left field to take you outside of even Christianity. And, and I was pretty confused for the first few months when, you know, I got yep. on YouTube and I started looking up different topics like, you know, UFOs in the Bible or whatever it is. And, and, right. and it just then you get locked in on spirit science <laughs> videos right. or like, yeah, there's like new age <laughs> guys talking about it and talking about Jesus yeah. and saying, oh, he was Sananda, the space commander. And then on Sundays, they're telling me <laughs> that it's, you know, he's the son of God. And I'm going, well, what's what's really going on? Right. You know, so uh, I could totally relate. But you, so you guys have an important role. And, and and others like you because you you are becoming and, and in many cases you know already are you're like traffic cops okay in Middle Earth you know, or, or, you know again just you're becoming leaders in Middle Earth that can you know not herd people for the for the sake of building your own little kingdom 
but you can sort of set up signposts and landmarks and, right. you know, stay away from this place, go over here, you know, and, and Middle Earth needs that. Middle Earth needs uh, direction. It, it needs leadership. It, it needs, you know, channels of, of content to help those who drift in navigate you know, what's there to, to help give them the lay of the land it, because right. it is just a wild place. You know, this whole time I've been uh, taking notes and trying to draw out a sort of chart as to how this whole theory works. Um, and I've covered about 10 square pages full now. And I think I've figured it out. And I think I'm okay with it as long as I can be legless and gone to be Gimli. <laughs> I think that's want to be Gimli. Uh, Gons, do that it me. doesn't matter. You just are Gimli. <laughs> Gimli doesn't choose to be Gimli. Oh, I see man. how it is. I knew that was coming. By the way, I, I just sensed <laughs> I know. this thing. Well, Gimli is my daughter's favorite character. Yeah, so he's Gimli's my favorite character to too. That's why I'm Legolas because we're best friends. <laughs> <laughs> And my axe. Right. There, you, there go. you go. I don't have a legless impression because I don't, he doesn't talk a lot. He's a no, strong he silent top type. You know, I saw, uh, just because we're on the subject and I don't want to get too far off, but I saw a, somebody had made a chart that showed that legless and Frodo never say a single word to each other. Wow. That that person has a little too much time on their hands. Yeah, they, give them something to do. They charted out every conversation, and Legolas and Frodo just sort of float around each other <laughs> the whole story and never say a word. I could be wrong, but I did see something about oh, that. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, but but me and you, Guns, we're the we're the the non we're the the, 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 the duo. <laughs> All right. Well, you're protecting the hobbits. You know, yeah. <laughs> Little yeah. Hobbit. Well, I like that analogy. That's that's good. It makes me feel. Uh, no, I think that's brilliant. I mean, it it makes sense, and um, I hope I hope nobody gets upset that the they're now living in Middle Earth. But hopefully, <laughs> well, it, this will help look, them. Middle out. Earth is not a bad place. I mm -hmm. mean, there there are bad things in Middle Earth, but Middle Earth is where, again, look, the the top realm is the smallest realm. Right, and because those are the people with the PhDs and all that, it, you know. And there aren't many people who do that, relatively speaking. And you know, the the biggest realm, of course, is 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 the lowest realm. But Middle Earth has a significant population. I mean, it it just does. Right. And so that it, it you know, it, it's not a bad place. It's just a place that is unruly, unpredictable. Um, again, just lacks uh, coherence. It lacks filtering, but it is the it is the place that most of the masses. I mean, the people who I, I hate to use this term, but escape, you know, or leave, you know, from the the bottom realm because they're looking for content. In other words, they're not they're not heresy seekers. They they just want to learn right, something. Right, right, they right. They just know that there's more to the Bible than they've been told, right. and and they go. You know, they, they just take it upon themselves instead of sitting there crying and whining about it or blaming somebody else. They think, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to learn something about the Bible. You know, whether it be the last thing I do, I'm just going right. to do it. They, they take responsibility and, and they do it. And again, that, that's why I'm so sympathetic to it because, 
you know, you could just sit there and, you know, moan about your situation or you could just get off your butt and do something. Right. right. And that's, that's what middle earth is about. Again, it, it's, it's all those unfiltered, unruly things, but there are just a lot of good people in middle earth and they just want to, they just want right. to learn. And, and, you know, you bring up the, the top realm of the scholars and what I've seen both from your work and also just the, the sort of cultural or sociological survey of what I hear people say about the institution, if you want to call it that, the scholarly realm. You know, a lot of people say that uh, you can't believe, you know, the scholars because they're kind of falling in line and step with what the whole system is trying to preach and you know it's, yeah you can't and then there's the whole like knowing jesus versus knowing about jesus right. and they yeah. like really put down the phd peeps yeah, um, yeah and, that, and that's, that's just to excuse their own laziness you know in, in many respects i mean it's it's not it's not untrue that, that you'll run into academics that just have no spiritual life but if, if you're in the evangelical orbit you know that that is demonstrably untrue. I mean, they right. do care about you know their their walk with the Lord in, in the midst of their scholarship. It's just it's just not true. You know that I actually saw this sort of you know happen. Now I guess it's almost two weeks ago. But at the academic meetings, I ha I have a friend who uh, layperson you know truck driver met him at Roswell years ago and we've stayed in touch. Lives in Nashville and I I said hey you're close enough if you want to drive down here. I mean, you you can go meet John Walton. You can you know go talk to Daryl Bach. You know all these people that he's become aware of because he's he's reading stuff and you know listening to my blog or somebody else's webpage will reference some book or whatever. It's like they're all here you know right. dur during the week. So just come on out. And he did. So he, we we spent two or three days just you know going to papers you know hanging out, and it's like at the end of it he's he's. His mind's kind of blown because it's like I, I never do this. Like this is a whole other world, you know. And it's like, yep, you know, here we go, Middle Earth again. You know, just, <laughs> right, right. Again, you now you've you've glimpsed this other realm. You knew about the 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 one you essentially left, you know, intellectually. Right. And now you you become aware of this other one, and you know it it just happens to people. They they don't they don't know about it really until they sort of dip the toe right. in it. And and I, I recommend, you know, lay people to go. It's like, look, you don't have to be a scholar to go to these things. Just just look at the program, find something that, that sounds interesting and just go, you know, hear hear the guy talk and chat afterwards or whatever. I mean they're that that's what it's for. You know, people right. people expect that. And and scholars, believe it or not, really appreciate the normal person taking an interest in their work. Now, of course, I, I could be a little uppity here and say, well, more of them would do that if you'd actually write for them. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and again, that's equally true, but they, they appreciate it, uh, that, that someone's interested in, in what they're doing. And they're, they're more than happy to, to sit down and chat and spend a few minutes or, you know, have grab a, a coffee or something and just talk with again just some normal person that's discovered them right that that's a treat which you know, is for, sort of what you're things. doing here gandalf but <laughs> <laughs> um, I, ha I haven't made adequate trouble yet so. <laughs> <laughs> well here's this might give you a chance so one uh criticism that people might have uh, at least with their uh stereotypical view of um, you know, smart PhD people is that they don't really live in or operate with or even work within a worldview that is supernatural. Mm -hmm. And here you are coming out with a book 
um, basically saying that's not true, and we need to get back to that. Well, let me, there's a caveat there, because I think for the evangelical scholar, Mm -hmm. um, again, they... For the unbelieving scholar, of course, this is a non-issue because they just they don't they don't think any of it's real, right? But for the believing community, the confessional you know scholar, they still have to assess themselves personally, just like any any layperson in a church when they when they look at unseen realm. Uh, and in other words, I'm not sheltering them from making the the, the same personal assessment. How much of of this stuff that that we know a biblical writer believed? Right. How much of this do we really believe? And so there, it, it may even be harder, you know, for them because, you know, they they might sort of be trapped by what I call the myth of academic respectability. Mm-hmm. And and what I mean by that is, on the one hand, yes, it, it's important to be respected by other scholars because you want people to look at your work and say that that person does good work. Okay, it's just like any other job, you know, with mechanic or whatever. You, you want other people to look at what you do and say they do a yeah, good your job. Peers. Yeah. Right, your peers. So there, there's that. But but the myth part of it is that evangelical scholars think, well, if I just do enough. X, Y, Z, you know, good work. I'll be, I'll be respected. You know, okay. Mm. There, there are limits to that respect with, with many, again, unbelieving scholars, because they could, they could look at 99 things that you say out of a hundred and respect them. But if that one hundredth is, you know, I actually believe this stuff is real. Right. Then it's like, there's something wrong with you. Mm. You know, it's like the language of theological incorrectness, you know, when it, when when it operates you know, in that direction, it because they don't want they don't want to take that step, and they and and they're, they're, they they might feel the pressure you know of that. Right. Usually, well, usually it's about inspiration and inerrancy, and, and right. those it all depends how you define those things. Well, that's that's an interesting point. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like in some cases, somebody being a biblical scholar kind of has the same weight to them as, for instance, being a Tolkien scholar or something. They're investigating and writing scholarly uh, papers and stuff about a subject without necessarily, um, I don't know, thinking reality? Tolkien Tolkien is not a bad illustration, C.S. Lewis. I mean, you could be a C.S. Lewis scholar, but as soon as you say something like, well, what Lewis has written here, I think is ontologically correct. Right. You know, that that his defense of God is coherent, and and we ought to pay attention to this. And and you know he he's he's a he's a Christian, so am I. Well, in, in the minds of of it, again, it's just like real life. You, you're going to run into unbelievers, and some of them are are tolerant. Like, well, you know, to each his own. That's that's nice. You know, I'm I'm just not going there, but I, I still like you. You're still a good guy. But right. with others, it's like that because that's like pinning a bullseye on you, mm. and it has a lot to do with the attitude of your peers. You know, but it, it the same thing goes on in, in biblical studies, and so uh, I again I refer to it as a myth because if you think that everybody's going to like you, even if you do legitimately good work, and, and and you actually again join the crowd of of believers, if you think everybody's going to like you at the end of the day, you're just believing a fairy tale, yeah. and so so you just got to get over it and not care about it. 
you know, you've you, you got to do the best work you can, you know, where it, it doesn't call for some confessional statement. Well, then you don't need to make one. You, you just do the work, you know, where, where it does, you got to take your stand and, and just let the chips fall and not, not worry about it. Because at the end of the day, their problem is not going to be really the nuts and bolts of your analysis. Right. At yeah. the end of the day, the prop, the problem is, 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 you know, ontological. What, what, what you think is really, representative of reality, what you think really corresponds to reality. And you're not going to please everybody there. You just aren't. Right. So just get over it and and move on. Now, again, for, for unseen realm, I'm provoking that question all over again, because everybody who, you know, you know, you go to the evangelical theological society, Hey, we're all theists, we're all Christians and that's well and good. But what I'm saying is, look, I'm asking the question, have you dismissed, you know, from the whole question of biblical authority, have you, have you ignored, in, in light of the question of biblical authority, all this other stuff, you know, that, that the biblical writers, you know, would, would have believed, that, that the gods were real, you know, that, right. that Genesis 6 is, is really, they were thinking in supernatural terms, you know, when, when, when they're reading this. So, you know, what about that stuff? Right. You know, and, and so that that's going to be, you know, provocative uh, for a different reason. And I think, again, the good analogy there is, is the whole inspiration inerrancy thing, because that thing just, I mean, that it, it, it's never going to go away. It, it's always going to be an issue. And I think this needs to be a, uh, sort of the, the, same, the, the same kind of thing, you know, that, that we need to, you know, really do some personal, take some personal inventory and ask ourselves what it, what it is we really believe and do our beliefs correspond to the biblical writers. Right. But, and, I, and I restrict it to the supernatural realm. I'm, I'm not including things here like, you know, scientific statements or not and, and all that kind of stuff. I'm talking about the world that the biblical writers under inspiration wrote about that cannot be put under a microscope. Okay, this, this is outside the realm of science. By definition, this is the spiritual world. So they're two different things. What what is it about this realm that you believe or you feel free dismissing, and then still talk about biblical authority? Mm. Yeah, and, and for many, that's going to be an uncomfortable question. Right. Yeah, right. Feels, you know, I was going to say. You know, it's interesting because um, to a, a regular person, a regular Christian, it, it, the life and spiritual uh, battles of a scholar, um, kind of what you're talking about here, can seem, uh, I don't know, not sad, but just complicated. It can seem complicated and, good and, word. and unnecessary. And, you know, because the, the normal church-going person, God bless them, um, you know, arrive at uh, conclusions and b- believe them and for the most part will hold on to them for the rest of their, their lives unless there's some sort of big shift for some reason um, and to see the the struggle that academics have with the bible and and with uh, facts uh, with like you're saying inspiration and inerrancy um, but you can see it a different way which is these academics do have these hard questions and that's sort of what brought them into the scholarly realm in the first place is like a true search, uh, you know, into the details of this book and this belief system. And they're really having to hash it out in a lot more 
complicated situation than it, I think it, most people. Yeah, it, and it gets it gets terribly complicated. But I, well, I used to tell students, look, the the whole question of do I believe this or that, you know, whether it be God or not, you know, Christology, or deity of Christ or not, inspiration or not, all, all the you know, just put anything in the bucket. Right. It, it's never a question of who's smart and who's dumb. Right. Okay, because everybody in in the academic world, again, the the top tier world, everybody's smart. You don't just you don't just bump into a PhD and then it just sticks to you, okay? <laughs> I wish. You know, everybody everybody, you know, is you know, you know, is smart. They're, they, they, you have to have above average intelligence. You don't have to be a genius to get a PhD. It's really about perseverance and, and be, you know, being above average. Right. That kind of thing. But that is never the question. The question is always about how is the discussion framed and what presuppositions dictate how it's framed and dictate how the 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 data points within the, again the, the the framework of the discussion how they are thought about you know it it's all about framing and presuppositions mm. you know and and what you're really trying to do is is you're trying to assess an issue and say which option that we can come up with and again we can frame it in different ways and we're going to try out different ways but which option has the greatest coherence the most explanatory power because nobody's omniscient here all right so what which which is the best way the most coherent way to think about this problem and define the terms frame the discussion all that sort of stuff that is why the the discussions become so complicated because you're you're trying to probe what it is you believe or what it is you you think is is wrong in all sorts of different ways and and the discussion is 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 a moving target uh, perpetually and so you're you're trying to articulate where you're at and defend where you're at while at the same time you're trying to show that this other option over here, I don't accept it because it's less coherent for these five, six, seven, ten reasons or whatever. Uh, so, so there's a lot of layering to it that a lot of people don't realize, but this is sort of the way, you know, I don't want to sound trite here, but this is the way the game is played. Right. And, and anybody who plays it knows that very well, and they're going to respect you know, hey, I, I respect a guy like Bart Ehrman because Bart Ehrman is a legitimate scholar. He's a good textual critic. He has a good reputation within that field. But he's had some some personal issues of pain that I think have influenced the way he thinks, uh, the way he, 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 he talks about inspiration, you know, and, and rejects it, you know, as a textual critic. The, sa uh, the other guy over here can look at the same data and draw a completely different uh, conclusion why it's because of the way they frame the discussion right, right. because of, of how they're approaching the whole issue and that is largely a personal uh, thing that that's personality based it's experience based it's it's just life has dealt me xyz experiences and this is going to color the way i think you know th that's where it's at and so you have to have you have to have the patience to discuss those things with people and and i think where scholars like Ehrman will, again, I'll, I'll just say it, will slip into what I think is a bit of a disingenuous position is because 
they have an ax to grind. In other words, it, it, it goes beyond a personal struggle to, I want people to reject the same things I do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, 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 and I'm not saying he's mean, but he, he's, cause he's not, I mean, he, in, in debates, he, he doesn't get mean, but he, he, he does try to skewer the discussion. And for the people who are listening, who don't really know all the ins and the outs and, and, and the other ways you could look at the same set of data, he's, he's content to not inform them. Right. He's content to give you one perspective because he wants you, you know, to think the way he does and draw his conclusion. Right. Like confirmation right. bias, a little bit of yeah, uh, keeping things, uh, you know, we all kind of do that to a degree. Uh, let me give you an, an Ehrman illustration. You know, Bart Ehrman, you know, he's known popularly. Be and see, here you have a guy, Bart Ehrman, who, who writes for the masses. Right. In addition to scholarly literature. Popular. So... Right. He'll, he'll, he wrote The Orthodox Corruption of Scripture, which is his scholarly book. And ba his basic thesis is that, hey, there's a handful of passages here that I think I can demonstrate that the guys who copied the New Testament manuscripts made changes to steer belief toward Jesus being God in the flesh. Okay, well, not only do other textual critics dispute that, but let's just take that off the board. Let's just say, okay, Bart, you're right in these six instances. We had scribes steer, you know, change the text or whatever it is you, you want to say toward believing in the deity of Christ. Okay, let, let's just say you're right. Well, what about the rest of the New Testament? Okay, what about the places that, that you would never say anything was fiddled with and, and that affirm the same idea and in many cases predate, you know, the other idea or are contemporary to it? What about the rest of the whole New Testament? Right, yeah. Again, it doesn't make any sense to say that the, the doctrine of the deity of Christ originated with these five or six different passages when you've got people who lived in different parts of the world, writing at different times, you know, saying the same thing apart from this, these items that were produced, again, allegedly by, by a, a handful of scribes. It just doesn't make any sense. But Bart won't frame it that way. Bart will get you to focus on the five or six things he's arguing about and then say, well, this is the only thing we can conclude. No, it isn't the only thing we can conclude. Because you, you haven't give pe given people the full you know, data set. You haven't, you know, framed the discussion the way it needs to be framed. You've got 10,000 other verses here or whatever it is, you know, let, let's just say you've got 10 or 15 or 20 and there's a whole lot more than that. Affirmations of Jesus' deity where he is linked and identified with Yahweh of the Old Testament. Okay, outside the Gospels and, and inside the Gospels where, where Bart can't marshal any text critical evidence to say that there was anything going on here. What about those? You know, and, and but but people they never quite get there if they're listening to Bart because Bart isn't going to tell them that, right? Yeah, and you know it's funny because just to, you know as a sort of a layman observing some of the uh, things that Bart Ehrman stated and also the criticism that I've seen come against Bart Ehrman, uh, the one big thing that I heard was how he kind of skewed some numbers uh, when it came to the errors and uh, you know did a little fidgeting with it to make it seem like it was a lot more than the, the actual number and uh, you know, that kind of stuff seems disingenuous, but it, it, it is, you know, it, it, but you know, yeah, I don't want to get too far into Bart. Right. I mean, I, I know people who have a history with Bart and there, and, and there's some, 
again, there are just some personal issues there that, that would, would actually make you sympathetic, yeah, yeah. you know, to Bart, just personal tragedy that are just really unfortunate things. But, you know, if I can be so cold as to say, you know, lots of other people go through the same yeah. things. And they don't react the same right. way. It's almost as if he had the opportunity. So it's not a necessary yeah, path. He had an opportunity to sort of use his status and maybe perhaps his the available resources and, and you know, really pin down some things. And I have no idea what the personal things are. But in any case, you know, I wanted to dive into a couple of the topics in the Unseen Realm. Sure. And um, this, I think, kind of ties in nicely, uh, if I can make a segue into it. Uh, early on in the book, you talk about the image of God, uh, the... Uh, difference between, you know, being an imager and, uh, you know, bearing the image. And I thought it was a really fascinating breakdown of how you were able to, to kind of talk about that. And it's something that I hadn't really considered. And, you know, the, the sort of conclusion that to deny Christ in essence is in some ways denying your humanity. I thought that was really profound. Uh, can you talk about how you approached that? What, what was some of your arguments and stuff around that? Yeah. I mean, you, for, for those who haven't you know, read the book or any of the imaging uh, material. I, I, I don't believe, uh, and again, if you, if you want all the reasons, you can read the book, but I don't believe that the image of God is something like a quality given to humans or put into humans. Um, again, the esoteric reasons for, of Hebrew grammar, you know, that, that drive me to the, to the conclusion that we're, we're best you know, focused to look at the, the language of Genesis one twenty six and, and a few other verses as we humankind is created as uh, the image. We we it, and the best way to think about it, sort of a handy way to think about it, is think of it as ver, as a verb as a, or a verb. We we are created to image God. We are God's imagers, and and every human you know can can say that, but we we've you know things are disrupted by what happens you know at, at the fall. And so, when God tries to move things back to Eden, again, to recover uh, that which was lost and that which has fallen, we, we have this sense that while we, you know, while, while, while humans still are God's representatives, we are estranged from Him. And so, the only way that we can truly, you know, even, even hope, you know, to do what God originally created us to do, you know, to image him as one of his children, you know, as, as part of his family and, and his, his business, his, you know, what God is about, uh, you know, making, making the, the rest of the world like Eden is a big theme in the book. The only way we can even hope to sort of be on that page again, you know, is to embrace uh, the gospel, you know, for those of us who live, you know, after the cross, we use the term gospel. It's really the same thing in, across the Old and New Testament. We believe that God is the God of all gods and that he has chosen to be in a covenant relationship with us. And it has nothing to do with what we do or what we are or any quality we have. It's, it's because of the love of God. And we have to believe these things. And of course, the New Testament, that same God is now incarnate in Christ. And, and, you know, he comes and dies on the cross. And it's the same thing. Salvation is by grace through faith, you know, in, in what God has, has you know, asked us to believe. So, if we do that, then we can begin 
you know, to, to image God in, in, in the fullest sense. And we have the Spirit to help us. This is why we get this New Testament language of being conformed to the image of His Son, who is the express image of God. You know, so if, if you have that disconnect in terms of salvation, if you reject Christ, uh, then, you know, you're, yeah, you still have the same status, uh, you know, as any other created human being, but you will never... Uh, again, be able to fulfill the imaging concept right. uh, the way God, you know, designed it, you know, to to work and to be. Uh, it's interesting enough. I didn't put this into the book. This is like book book two material, but the idea of of bearing the name, uh, you know, in other words, to to uh, be marked as a representative uh, of, of the true God. Uh, that is that's that concept is actually what derives from or is resident in uh, the commandment, you know, to not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. The word take there, it's an unfortunate translation in English, is nasa, which means to bear or carry. Uh, It's the same idea, you know, to, to be marked, to be identified with Yahweh to be identified as one of Yahweh's children, because you are in the, in the believing community. Um, You know, that carries into the whole New Testament idea. Let everyone that names the name of Christ, you know, depart from iniquity. And of course, you get to the book of Revelation. You have the, the isn't it interesting that the followers of the beast are, beast are marked with the name? Okay. Right. Again, it, it's this same, same conceptual category. So, you know, it, it's a serious thing to align yourself, you know, with the true God and of course with, with Christ because, you know, now you are you are saying, I'm I'm aligned with him, and I am going to bear the name. I am going to fulfill my destiny. I am I am going to image God the way God intended it to be. And without that, and if if you just throw all that off and abandon it, and and choose to worship another god, you know that you're never again going to wind up at the destiny to which God wants all these things to go you know, to, to be part of his family, uh, in this, in his kingdom, in his council, you know, again, all these big concepts, you know, from unseen realm, it, it, it's just contrary to everything that God wants for you. Uh, and, but he, he, he will let you make that decision. He will let you, uh, reject and you will, you will pay a price for right. it. Yeah. And it seems like it's, you kick down these small pillars. It seems like that, uh, that we've kind of been taught, you know, just as a, a general, you know, digging into the Bible of, I guess, the lower realm, if you want to call it that, the the the, the basic stuff that we get fed. And, and one of them, and there's a few things I want to touch on, but one of them is um, you touch on the, the Genesis account of let us uh, make the, mm-hmm. you know, humans in our image and that plurality there. And, you know, we're taught it's the Trinity. There's other views of it. But what, what's your take on it that you argue in the book? Yeah, it's it's a single speaker, God speaking to a group. Again, let us, hey, let's do this thing. Well, who's he who's he talking to? Again, there's there's no indication that it's three uh, in the passage. Obviously, if this was the only passage in the Bible that gave an indication of divine plurality, yeah, you could get away with the Trinity. But the problem is, there's there's actually two problems. The the, the problem is that there are other passages where divine plurality is part of the picture that you don't want the Trinity anywhere near. 
uh, like Psalm 82. You know, I, I would suggest to you that the, the divine plurality in Psalm 82 can't be the Trinity because God is charging the other Elohim with being corrupt. You know, he's not, and that's just, that's just unworkable again in, in any sort of Trinitarian framework. Um, you know, so, so you have a problem of divine plurality elsewhere. Plus, if you actually think about Genesis one twenty six, God says, "Hey, let let's do this. You know, let let's create humankind." Well, it's cast as an announcement. If if we're talking about the Trinity, there shouldn't the other persons of the Trinity already know if they're part of the Godhead? Why would you announce something to someone who already knows what the decision right. was? Right. I mean, it just it just doesn't make any sense. But we filter the passage because it's it's kind of odd to have this plural language. A lot of Christians just filter it through the New Testament idea of a trinity. And, and honestly, the reason they do that is because they're taught to do that, either by a pastor or by church tradition. When it's very simple, God's speaking to a group. Who, who's there before, you know, the creation of humanity? Well, according to Job 38, it's the sons of God. You know, so he's speaking to the members of his heavenly host, the, the, the divine council, and he says, I got a great idea, let's do this. And the reason it's plural, and then it switches to singular when the actual creation happens. God creates singularly, and he creates in his image or as his image and likeness. The reason we have both the plurality and the singularity is, is to telegraph, again, a few ideas. There's some relationship between God, the divine council, and humanity. That, right. Again, the plurality links all of them. Yeah. But when it switches to singular, that tells us who the creator is and who everyone is supposed to image, both human and non-human entities that are created as God's imagers. And if you take the idea of representation, well, it, it, it's not complicated. Un, you know, the divine beings image God, they represent God in, in the ways and in the realm that he has created for them and that he has created them for. And in, in terms of, of humanity, we are to image God in our domain, our realm, which is, right. of course, earth, the embodied world. You know, and and sorry to cut you off, but the the term "sons of God" it comes up uh, in a lot of these passages, and amongst the citizens of Middle Earth, you know, there's a lot of different definitions of that. Uh, how exactly would Gandalf define that? Well, sons of God, you know, it, that that precise phrase, either B'nai Elohim, B'nai Ha-Elohim, or B'nai Elim, right. in the Hebrew Bible is always divine beings. Okay. Now, you have... Is that just angels, or do we have different types? Well, to me, angel is a job description. Or elves. Right. Right. Yeah, elves. That, that, that's a job description, too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all all inhabitants of the spiritual world are Elohim. Okay, they they are they are divine beings. And okay. for the, for those again who the, the terminology here is is unfamiliar, you know, who hear that and think, oh, you're you know, this guy's a polytheist. No, actually, I'm not. Uh, you, you you have to again think about what's being said and what's being and what's not being said. The Bible uses the term Elohim to describe half a different half a dozen different things. And so that alone tells us that the biblical writer did not assign a specific unique set of attributes to the word Elohim. The problem is is that's how we look at GOD. Yeah. We see GOD and we assign a specific unique set of attributes to the thing called GOD. 
That's that's how we're mentally trained. That's how we're culturally, you know, trained. But the biblical writer again did not do that with Elohim. And you say, well, how do you know that, Mike? Well, you you go look at where he uses it. To the biblical writer, the Elohim of the nations, like gods like Baal and you know Chemosh and Molech, they are not on the same ontological par with the God of Israel, but they are called Elohim. First mm-hmm. Samuel twenty eight thirteen, the disembodied Samuel is referred to as an Elohim. Yep. Yeah. He is not on an ontological par with the God of Israel. Wow, that's yeah, I'd you never know, heard that before. I mean, the, the, it just doesn't work. Yeah. So the the fact that a biblical writer felt very free to use Elohim of angels or the gods of the nations or the gods of counsel or the disembodied dead, you know, or you know. It, of of anything other than Yahweh, okay? Right. The fact that he could do that should tell you that he's not thinking of, of a specific unique set of attributes, it, that the term must denote something else. And the something else, the reason you'd use Elohim of, of, uh, of an entity, is if I call you Elohim, what I'm, what I'm saying is you are a member, an inhabitant by nature of the spirit world. Mm. That's all it means. Yahweh is an Elohim. But no other Elohim is Yahweh. Yahweh is distinguished in the Hebrew Bible by, you know, a number of things. He is the only one called creator. He's the only one to whom is assigned, you know, total sovereignty. He is the only one deserving of worship. I mean, again, you got four or five ways that Yahweh is distinguished. So that when it says, besides me, there is no other, he's not saying that other Elohim don't exist because the Hebrew Bible has other Elohim existing. Right. Okay. What he's saying is, I'm incomparable. There is none like me. There, there is, I, am, I am species unique. Okay, we're all Elohim, but none of the other Elohim are right. me. Nor can they hope to be, because I created all the other ones. You know, again, so there's, this, there's an ontological distinction made along those lines, but not, it's not wrapped up in the term Elohim. So, I mean, you, you have this... You know, sons of Elohim, well, they're all Elohim too, sons of God, because they're spirit beings. Now, sons of God, as I talk about in Unseen Realm, is a term of rank. It's not an ontological term. It's a term of rank. Right. Just like, just like Malach, angel is. It, right. it describes a responsibility or a set of responsibilities. It describes what, what they do. Right, which uh, some people within the American church might uh, be able to connect with a little bit because there's a, a, a movement in modern Christianity involving sonship and how that's more of a position rather than it is a, you know, a, a gender-based uh, offspring yeah. type situation. Well, the New, the New Testament you know, uses the, the more gender-neutral language in certain places. There are places where the New Testament... Again, hearkening back to the old, uses right. sons of God, but then there there are other places where it uses techna, children of God, the neuter mm. plural. You know, it, so it it's kind of six of one and a half dozen of another. You know, now we as believers, again, believers are referred to as children of God and sons of God, and and are and are put into again this sort of divine council slot of of being you know, ruling over angels, of inheriting the nations. Again, some of these roles that in the Old Testament, the sons of God, uh, good or bad, uh, are tasked with. Right. And, and again, that, that's, a, as I discuss in the book at length, you know, uh, this is because 
it was originally back in Eden, the human destiny to be part of the divine council. So that you'd have, you'd have two families, a non-human and a human family, but they, they are fused together as one. They live in the same place where the, where the presence of God is there in Eden. And they are, they are tasked with carrying out, with imaging God, carrying out God's will in whatever realm they operate in. So God wanted one family. He had one family business in, in this one place. Eden is where heaven met earth. And, and the, this is how it was supposed to be, but it's not. And, and after the fall, we still have this language because God is, is steering things back to that point. So there's one passage in the Old Testament, sons of the living God. So it's not a, a a specific sons of God parallel, but it's a different different wording in Hosea 1.10. And people like to say, well, look, you know, the sons of the living God, those are Israelites. You know, that, that means all these other ones have to be people too. Again, it, it commits the fallacy of one meaning has to fit every passage, which is mm-hmm. absurd. Right. But the reason why, if you actually read the book of Hosea, the, the people of God have been disinherited because of their apostasy. But in the future... In the future, you know, they'll be brought back. You'll, you'll be part of the family again. You'll, you'll be called sons of the living God in the same place where I've said, Lo Ami, you're not my people. And, it, and it, 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 again, it speaks of this God not giving up on having humans be part, you know, be glorified members of his family, you know, collectively ruling and living with and reigning with his non-human family. It, it has nothing to do with canceling out the other side. There's always the, the, the two things in, in tandem, the two things in operation. But again, a lot of evangelicals like to cancel out the supernatural because that's just more comfortable. Right. right. Then we don't have to talk about all this weird supernatural stuff. Oh, well, well, we need the Trinity. As I like to say, well, what's so normal about the Trinity? What's so normal about incarnation? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the I Trinity. Mean, what, what, what makes that easy? <laughs> the Trinity being something that is just even more complex for the, the human brain to even fully comprehend. I mean, we can like sort of leave leave details out or not think about certain aspects that would make a trinity possible but there's the the complexity of making three things one but separate but also one <laughs> but of the same but still different is like so complicated yeah that- and, and people tend to reject it because it they they can't come up with an analogy an analogy from their own experience or their own life right you know it, well well congratulations you've just discovered that our realm is not the spirit realm <laughs> you know so like well, you know why why take that discovery you know affirm the obvious and then extrapolate to the unnecessary you know but it that's just what it's just a human propensity right. you know right. i i can't come up with a way for me to understand that Therefore, it must not be true. Well, mm, yeah, really? Yeah. How many other things do we do yeah. that to? And, and speaking in terms of some of that, you know, one of the things, and I'll maybe set you up to upset some apple carts, do some Gandalf, you know, trouble causing or whatever. Gandalf in the Middle Earth. Uh, one of the uh, hashtag Gandalf thing. <laughs> that's gonna be a thing. <laughs> Just made yeah. it a verb. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, in the Middle Earth, you know, the, the, that realm. Uh, one of the big mm-hmm. things is Bible prophecy, the whole, you know, community of people looking at eschatology and, uh, you know, very adamantly talking about various views of the rapture and all kinds of stuff. The Antichrist, who is it going to be? What's Mystery Babylon? There's endless topics. 
one of the things that is a hotbed topic just because of our current sort of geopolitical situation is the nation state of Israel. And, you know, I've mm-hmm. been really looking at this uh, more or less a year and a half, maybe closer to two years. And I, I really avoided the issue for a while because I thought, man, this is so hostile. There's all these different views on it. And I sort of took the general view of, oh, okay, you know, the Bible says God's going to regather the nation. So there you go. You have uh, Israel is back. This is fulfillment of Bible prophecy. And I didn't think anything more of it. And um, I, I, the more I look into it, the more I have trouble with that idea. And I know that's really almost blasphemy for some people that might be listening. Uh, but in terms of some of the logic that's used, a lot of them use Genesis 12.3. They use other you know prophetic sounding passages of which I think that, you know, if you want to buy into the whole prophecy, then you got to take the whole prophecy into account, not just, you know, half a verse. Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the idea of Abraham's seed, you know, and relating it to the idea of the sons of God, and you, you talk about this in your book as well, but how do you define, in your terms, in the biblical view, how do you define Israel in the biblical context? Because I think it's gotten confused with the modern nation state. And is there a distinction in your opinion? Yeah. And and the reason this is controversial is because we, um, we've sort of conflated biblical theology with, you know, our own earthly political positions. Uh, And, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm quite sympathetic to the state of Israel uh, I don't think it's, you know, when the state of Israel does wrong, we should say it has done wrong. Right, yeah, mm-hmm. There's nothing sacrosanct about that because guess what? In the Old Testament, God looked at the nation of Israel and said, you people stink. <laughs> I mean, no, really, because they were apostate. Right, yeah. right. This thing called the exile. Yeah. In other words, God judged them for being ungodly. They deserved it. It was righteous to do so. So this this notion that no matter what Israel does, it has to be approved is just a false theology. Right. Now, having said that, I'm I'm real. I'm I'm no friend of you know the 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 Palestinian right right you know authority because hey why can't you be like Egypt you know that they 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 made peace and it worked you know until you know last couple of years anyway who knows what's going on in Egypt now, but. You could do this, but the Palestinian Authority never seems to be able to make peace. You know, instead of imitating Egypt, what do they do with peace? Well, they start building tunnels under Israel so they can, you know, kidnap and assassinate people. I mean, it just you just have all these things going on. So again, I'm no I'm no friend of of that. I'm no friend of the political left. I despise the political left, <laughs> and I'm suspicious of the political right yeah. mm-hmm. um, because I. Again, I take what Jesus said. I actually think he meant what he said when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. Amen. Okay, it's just not. So the United States is not another Israel. No. The United States is, is again, not the, the focus of biblical prophecy. You know, all this kind of stuff that, that gets conflated together. Uh, again, and it, it does so because, you know, we, we want to be on the right side when it comes to Israel. And, and I hope for the most part we have been, and, I, and I'd like to think that for the most part, Israel has at least tried, but, but the honest truth is that, you know, both we and Israel have done, you know, bad things 
and we ought to be called out for them, and we ought to repent and correct, you know, those things, on, you know, and, and so should Israel. So, you know, having, getting all that out of the way, you, you go to the, to the biblical issue, and for me, you know, I, I think Paul could just not have been clearer in Galatians 3, you know, when he says that, you know, <laughs> I might as well just, just read a, a little bit of it. He says in verse uh, 4, you know, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by the hearing of, you know, with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Now that quotes Genesis 12, 3. And it, it, it links Gentiles, you know, into this thing that we call faith. But what people miss is verse 7. Those of faith are actually the sons of Abraham. So in verse 9, he said, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. You know, the man of faith. And you go down into the passage Verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. He's speaking to, you know, Jews here, captive under the law. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Mm. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for, and here we go, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Mm. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Again, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And here's the, here's the kicker. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring Whoa. and heirs according to the promise. Wow. This, this passage clearly defines Israel, quote unquote, okay, the Jew, the, the, the children of Abraham as believers, Yep. whether they are ethnically Jewish or Gentile. It's all the same thing. Now, there, now that much is clear. And, and Paul is clear elsewhere in this. This is, again, I don't know what he could have said to make it any clear. <laughs> all right, but it just, you know, it perpetually gets ignored. So if you ask Mike, is, is, is the church the new Israel? I would say, yeah, it is. But there's still another question hanging around. And that sub-question is, is there a prophetic future for national Israel? National Israel. Mm -hmm. So, to me, that is the much more difficult question. Right. Because you, you have to ask yourself, again, this is, we're talking about framing the question here. Okay, well, whenever Paul talks about Israel, does he always mean the circumcision neutral believer, the circumcision neutral people of God, or does he ever talk about ethnic Israel, national Israel? Well, you know, sure, he, he talks about that. Well, when, he, when he's talking about, you know, a, a future, he, he's looking forward into what God is going to do. Can we say conclusively that Paul never has national Israel in mind? Mm. I don't know that you can say that. Uh, it, it, it's very difficult, you know, to draw that conclusion. And so I'm willing to hold these things, you know, in, in, 
intention. On one hand, Israel has served its purpose. It brought us the Messiah. Okay, that, that, that produces this circumcision neutral thing we call the church, which Paul calls the children of Abraham mm-hmm. in Galatians 3. You know, on the other hand, is that the end of the story? Does Israel have no other purpose? I don't see how you can conclude that. Because okay, let's look at the end of Revelation. Okay, if we believe that Armageddon is going to be a real event, and, you know, again, go read Unseen Realm for this. This is not a battle that is focused on Megiddo or at Megiddo. This is about Zion. This is about Jerusalem. Okay, this is, this is where all the, you know, this is for all the marbles here. So, just in that passage, you have a focus on, again, the holy city, Jerusalem, and all that kind of stuff. So, the... If, if we only had that passage, we'd have to conclude, well, there's something going on over here with the land and with this city that is important, that is climactic. And so, again, that that just creates, that that sort of lays the foundation for, well, well how else does, does national Israel focus into things? And that's where the ambiguity of biblical prophecy, you know, becomes part of the discussion. So, I don't feel like I have to pick one or the other. But I think it's it's just, it's biblically ignorant to say that we cannot say that the church is the new Israel, because Paul just point blank says that. Again, that, but that's a different question than this this other stuff. And this is extraordinarily complex. Right, yeah. let, let, let's, let's just talk about Genesis 12, okay, the Abrahamic covenant. Mm-hmm. Lots of Christians out there would assume well, this is, this is an unconditional covenant. God's word has to be fulfilled. Well, of course it does. But if you believe that it's totally fulfilled in the church, guess what? It was fulfilled. God didn't neglect it. God didn't forget about it. God didn't dismiss it. It, it got fulfilled. It's just not the, the way that you want it fulfilled here. But it, it was fulfilled. So that this whole idea that if you take any other view, then you're denying the fulfillment of prophecy is just nonsense. Okay? It, just, it just fails to understand what Paul is writing about in Galatians 3. But, but sweeping that off the table, look, look at the language of the covenant. You got three promises. You know, the, the seed promise, you've got the land promise, you know, you've got the, again, this whole, you know, status as, as children of God and, and all, this, all this sort of stuff. Well, people would say, well, the, the land, they never got the land, you know, the, the, the land's still out there. So we, you know, we tie that to the millennial kingdom and there's, you know, all this kind of thinking going on. Well, that sort of looks like it's going to go one way because you assume that these are unconditional promises. But do you realize that later in chapter 17, God looks at Abraham and says, walk before me and be perfect. Mm-hmm. Do you realize, you know, and, and Genesis 17, it's about circumcision. Mm-hmm. Okay, there's something you have to do here, Abraham. Okay, after Abraham heard about the need to circumcise himself and his family, what if he'd have said, ah, oh, that's going to hurt. <laughs> you know, I'm, 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 I'm not going to do that. Or I'll do it, but, but then he just doesn't do it with his children and his children after. It, you know, is that okay? God says, okay. Oh, Oh, crud, I tied my hands with the covenant. I have to, you know, fulfill this promise, even though Abraham is sinning against me. Right. That's absurd. Look at Abraham and Isaac. If Abraham would have said, well, you know, not so much. You know, I, that's just kind of scary. It's kind of creepy. I don't, I don't want to do that. You know, I don't want to, like, slay my own son. God, can't you come up with another idea? You know, th- there are passages that, that, 
that specifically say that Abraham was blessed because he obeyed. Now, the, the reality is that all the covenants have conditions, and they all are also, in some sense, unconditional as well. And you say, well, how do you put those two things together? Again, it's not rocket science. God has purposed that he will have a people. He purposed that a descendant of David would sit on the throne. Whether Abraham gets to participate in that or not, whether David and his offspring, whichever offspring it is, his descendants, get to participate or not, is up to their obedience. Okay, God's hands are never tied. The covenants do come with conditions, and the, the, the people who should have inherited them can be set aside so that something else can be done. And that's precisely you know, what, you, what Paul talks about with, with Israel and the church in Romans 9 to 11. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't return to Israel, because he says that too, you know, in, in Romans 9 to 11. It doesn't mean that God has sort of wiped his hands of, of national ethnic Israel, mm. but he, he's actually done something that transcends national ethnic Israel because his purposes will not be thwarted. Mm. So you don't want to participate. That doesn't mean the promise is undone, because this is what I'm going to do. It just means that you lose. Okay, I win, you lose, and somebody else is going to win who obeys, you know, who believes. Right. You know, that, that sort of thing. So we, we tend to look at this and, and assume, well, you know, God has to do that, that. That's one question. Another question is, well, did Israel inherit the land? Did they inherit the land in the Old Testament? And that depends on how you define the boundaries. People aren't even aware of this. There are actually three different descriptions in terms of boundary markers for the, quote, promised land. One of them conforms to the, 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 the kingship under Solomon and David if you count areas that were under Solomon's control in terms of tribute, but that were not subsumed in the, in the, you know, the, the tribal you know, governance directly. Well, does that count? as, as the, the, the kingdom that God promised? Some say yes, some say no. Okay, did Israel sin away, you know, the, the, the land promise in the exile? Some say yes, others say no. Well, what about coming back? You know, Leviticus 26, if, if you don't obey, you know, then I'm going to kick you out of the land. Possession of the land is linked to obedience, by the way, folks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can give you a dozen passages on this that, you know, you're, you're you know, I hate to say it this way, but your prophecy guru probably will never introduce you to. <laughs> because it doesn't fit the template. Yeah. Okay, it, these two things are linked. And, and this is why, it, it's not that, oh, I'm millennialist, they're so hard-hearted, are they even saved? You know, no. <laughs> they're looking at these passages and thinking, well, God said, I'm going to kick you out if you disobey, and that's what God did. And then he, had, then he creates the church later on, so it's already fulfilled, but we don't have to think about this land promise anymore. They're thinking what they're thinking because of biblical reasons. Right, yeah. Again, and, and, and again, they, they need to have their attention diverted, too, over to some other things. This is why prophecy is so tough. Yeah. You, you, get, you get both trajectories, you know, talked about in the New Testament. What about the return? Well, Ezekiel 30, 36 and 37 are pretty clear that Ezekiel was thinking a return, a release from exile, includes all the tribes, not just two, not just Judah and Benjamin. And that, and that just throws everything into a hornet's nest because it means that when Jesus showed up the first time, Israel was still in exile. Right. And then you have to ask the question, well, I wonder, 
I wonder when the body of Christ, you know, this thing called the church was created that included Gentiles. I wonder if there were converts from every tribe, because if there were, boy, that's starting to look like fulfillment. You know, I mean, <laughs> have all these questions that, that you don't have precise answers to in the New Testament. This yeah. is why, and, and I say this is why, there's like 10 other reasons, too, why prophecy is so stinking complicated. <laughs> So my advice to, to, to people is always, if you come across anybody that says they have this figured out, ignore them. Okay? <laughs> Don't buy it. It's just too complicated. And I know all the schemes. I know all the systems. Everybody cheats. Right. Because they have to if they're married to a system. Right. So Mike, Mike, what's your system? You know, I don't know. I don't have a word for my system, but I'll tell you what it is. Just like prophecy was cryptic and could only be understood as fulfilled after the fact, mm -hmm. the first time around with, with Jesus, with the Messiah, mm -hmm. that's how it's going to work this time. Right. We have no reason to suspect that we can ever hope to know how everything is going to fall into place ahead of time. We will only know it in hindsight because yeah. that's just how prophecy works. Right, right. So don't conflate it with salvation. <laughs> okay. Don't my, my, you, know, you can't be a Christian unless you hold my view of end time, just like we do with creationism too. Those right. are the, the two things that people get confused with the gospel. They right. are not the gospel. There are reasons why they're tough. And again, prophecy is one of those things where every time I, this is why I don't do prophecy conferences, by the way, because I, I, I really get to be Gandalf like waving the stick around with that. <laughs> <laughs> because look, the, prophecy is a classic example of, you know what? You really don't know what you don't know. Yeah. It's just so complicated and so layered and so you could go one direction or the other at just the slightest little you know, thought that creeps into your head about how to think about this one thing. And there you go. You're off on another direction. It's just so layered and so complicated that it's fun to think about, but, but make it be fun and don't use it to judge someone else's salvation or Amen. even their, their commitment to the Lord. It, it's just, it's foolish. It's foolish to do that. Yeah. And, and you know, we're, we're pretty much out of time here, but I have a real brief question and then we'll wrap it up. But, uh, uh, somewhere along those lines, and I think you kind of covered um, eh, more or less sort of the, the Hebrew roots movement. I don't want to ask you specifically about that, but in tandem with that, you know, I, I get asked almost daily, literally, uh, from people on the YouTube channel and things like that, why don't you use the KJV? Why aren't you using the only inspired English Bible, the KJV? Oh, and <laughs> I wanted to get your response to that because I, I, I pretty much echo what uh, what you have stated in, in some of your blogs and stuff like that, where, you know, when people ask me what's the best version, I tell them, you know, and I tell them, and I get this from you, the version that you're going to read faithfully, that's the one that's yeah. going to be the most important. But uh, maybe, can you give us a couple specific reasons why, you know, I mean, yes, you, you have stated the KJV is a good translation, but every translation has its problems and, and so on. So what's kind of your response to to some of that? And they do, because translation is a, is a very human process that is dependent on the manuscript data at your disposal at any given point. Right. You know, there, there are no perfect translations. There are a lot of good ones. 
They all have strengths. They all have weaknesses. Now, in in, in my case, you know, I'm I'm actually sympathetic to the King James because it was the one I was sort of raised on as a as a new Christian. You know, when I became a a Christian as a teenager, um, which is part of the reason why in my job that I felt I I owed the KJV something, and so I'm I'm the guy here at Logos who created the KJV reverse interlinear. And without getting into to what that is, you have to hand, you know, too much in too much detail. You, but here, here's how it's done. You have to hand link every word of the translation, in this case, the KJV, to the Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic segment or word from which the translation derived. Now, I devoted two hours a day to that for a solid year. I am probably the only person on the planet who has done something like that. I have literally looked at every word of the King James and looked at every word and particle in the original languages from which the King James was created and thought about it. (laughs) Okay. I didn't do that because Mike is just so super smart and all that. I did it because I was paid to do it. Because you're Gandalf. And we, and we needed it. And and I thought, you know, if I'm going to do one of these at work, I want it to be the King James. Because I just felt like I owed it something. And so, yeah, it took me a year to do that. And I can tell you with complete confidence and with and speak with the voice of authority here, the King James is a good translation. I will never trust it in Job again, okay, because Job is just so riddled with difficult words that occur only once or twice, and there's no context for a lot of these things. And the King James translators didn't have things like the Dead Sea Scrolls. They, they right. didn't have access to cognate languages that could help them come up with a good translation. It, it's, King James was a committee translation. There, there, there are places where one translator clearly understands a principle of Hebrew grammar. And, and for those who, who doubt me, I'll give you one. In, in Hebrew and in Aramaic, more so in Aramaic than Hebrew, but in both languages, they will at times use the demonstrative pronoun, which is typically translated this or that. They will actually use it as the copula, the linking verb, to be, is, or are. Okay, it's just a phenomenon of grammar across, you know, Semitic languages. So, there are places, clearly, where the King James, the guy who was working on XYZ book, understood that and got it right. There are other places where the guy was totally lost, Mm. just did not get it. And so, again, this is just what happens in translation. The King James is a good translation. It is not a perfect translation because there aren't any of these. And then you have the textual issue. I mean, if you, if you want a textual example, Deuteronomy 32.8. Yeah. Okay, the reading sons of Israel, King James, makes no sense, you know, to have the most high dividing up the nations according to the number of the sons of Israel. Of course, the nations are divided back at Babel in Genesis 10. Guess what? Israel doesn't exist. Mm. It's not listed in Genesis 10 of the nations that result from that division. The translation makes no sense at all. And, and, and it's because the translators are using the Masoretic text. Yeah. And that's what the Masoretic text has. That's not what the Dead Sea Scrolls have. Dead Sea Scrolls have sons of God. Okay. You know, so you, you, you run into these situations where, you know, that the King James 
translation team did a wonderful job. There's a reason it has endured, you know, so long and, and still endures because it's a good translation. But, you know, it, it, there's no mystical thing about it. And you can demonstrate where it has weaknesses or makes mistakes. The word Easter in a translation, really? <laughs> you know, it, it, again, you, you, could, you could just go on and on with these things, and, I, and I'm not picking on the King James because, again, I devoted a year of my life to producing this product so that people could use it, so that the, so that they could, you know, study their Bible, the original languages, through the King James. If I didn't like the King James, I wouldn't have wasted the time. I would have volunteered for another one. Right. You know, if you're going to pay me to do this, give me the NASB or something. You know, no, I wanted to do the King James. Right. Uh, one last note, you know, the King James guys only have the Masoretic text and, and the King James only people, you know, they don't realize it's a good case of not knowing what they don't know, but they'll get into all these battles about the, the Byzantine majority text and the Alexandrian text. Oh, that's the evil satanic text <laughs> came from Egypt, you know, like Athanasius. Okay. And Augustine, you know, <laughs> It's just so absurd. Well, guess what? Those terms and those text families pertain to New Testament only. Right. In other words, what you're fighting about doesn't even apply to three quarters of your Bible. Right. Okay. It, it just, it's not even on the radar. The Masoretic text was something produced around 100 AD. We know that, again, because of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And guess what? Even when it was produced, there are people who liked the Masoretic tradition, but they liked Masoretic texts that, you know, went a different direction prior to, you know, 100 AD. And they kept using the version of the Masoretic text that they liked. And you say, version of the Masoretic? There's only one Masoretic text. No, there isn't. There's a guy named Optowitzer who produced a multi-volume work in German collecting variants within the Masoretic text tradition. <laughs> there is no one Masoretic text. Okay, so whatever the King James guys used, they could have, you know, been using another Masoretic text, but they didn't. Right. Because this is what they have. Again, the, the whole argument is just dead on arrival if you are familiar with the data. It, it, it just dies right there. But, but again, all these things that I've talked about, it, someone has married their faith to a translation, which is tragic on one level. I mean, it, and nothing you say is going to disabuse them of this. Right. And, you know, it, but they're, they're just, they're low hanging fruit for all sorts of things that are going to come their way and it's going to, there's going to be something in their translation that doesn't work with reality. Then they're going to jump ship. They're going to leave the faith. They're going to do all, you know, look, it's just, let's, let's just get real. Okay. <laughs> just read your Bible, study your Bible. If you like the King James, by all means use it, but do not assign inspiration to a translation. Amen. Boom. Hashtag Gandalfing real hard. <laughs> Again, I, I, I like the King James, you know, just, yeah. but I'm probably the only person in the world that has ever done something like that. Right. No, I mean, it's, it's good. It's, it's, it's a huge uh, debate amongst uh, us middle earthers here. So it's, it's good to get some, um, 
you know, another, some more insight on that. Now, I know we're just running out of time here. We're coming up on uh, um, the time that you, you needed to move on. So I'm going to give you a one last chance to drop any other knowledge that you just feel burning inside your little heart. And then uh, tell us where we can pick up your book and read your stuff. Oh boy, burning inside my heart. My naked Bible fantasy football team is just not very good. <laughs> uh, this this is a Monday, so that's that's burning me right yeah, now. Yeah, I'm um, sure. <laughs> but anyway, no, you know, if, for for folks who want to um, either have a convenient link to the book, of course, you can go to Amazon. But anything I do is accessible through drmsh.com. Uh, Look for, hopefully before Christmas, again, three other books. They're all going to be oriented to Bible study and, you know, kind of helping you, you know, learn a short list of things, you know, actually a couple hundred things. So I guess it's not a real short list, but things that will help you uh, in your Bible study. So be on the lookout for that. And if I can leave one nugget, uh, you know, one thought is that I am living proof that five minutes is a long time. Uh, when it comes to to biblical knowledge, when I became a Christian as a teenager, I knew who Jesus was. I had heard of Jesus, I had heard of Adam and Eve, and I had heard of Noah. That was the extent of my biblical knowledge. And so, what what I am, yeah, I'm I have the fancy degree, and I'm a biblical scholar, and all that kind of stuff. But what I really am is I am the cumulative result of taking time little bits of time uh, every day and just trying to learn something every time you sit down with scripture. You can do that. Anybody can do that. Um, so that would be my, my little nugget for the day. Because I've lived that. Five minutes is a long time. Take it. If you learn one thing new about scripture, about doctrine, about your faith, about the Lord every day, that's 365 things you didn't know a year from now. Um, wow! You know, that you didn't know before. It's cumulative effect. That that's a big rule for Bible study. Excellent. Very very good advice. There you go, everybody. Make sure to go to drmsh.com. That's Doctor Mike S. Heiser. I'm assuming. Uh, drmsh. So Check clever, out. isn't it? Yeah, you're, you're <laughs> real good. Uh, he's got he's got a bunch of posts. He's got his book. He's got all sorts of stuff there. The Naked Bible, and yeah, obviously, podcast, yeah. yeah. And obviously, Amazon.com to uh, pick up uh, his newest book, which is. The Unseen Realm, and of course, Supernatural is the light version of that. There you go. So, Middle Earthers are going to love Unseen Realm. Let's just put it that way. They have some Bible under their belt, and they are used to to sustained effort in Bible study. So, get the Unseen Realm. Wonderful. All right. There you go. Go do it. Dr. Mike Heiser, thanks again for coming on the show, buddy. And uh, we'll see you wandering around the uh, plains of Mordor or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on a white horse. <laughs> <laughs> All right, buddy. Take it easy. Thanks a lot. So there you have it, folks. Dr. Michael Heiser. Gandalf. Awesome. Gandalf. Hashtag Gandalfing. Um, we hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Hey, just to mention it, we've had a lot of requests to keep the Canary Cry Radio Archive USB 
drive project going for just a little bit longer um so if you want if you're wanting to sign up for that if you've just been thinking about it and haven't really landed on a decision um it's still available you can go to canarycryradio.com to the support tab and there's uh, all the information and buttons there and what that is is uh you know like i keep saying Right now, at this point in our lives, Gons and I are not into selling retail things. We ain't selling books or mugs. Um, we have done t-shirts. We have done t-shirts in the past. Yeah. Uh, but right now, that's not where we're at. So, if you feel like uh, Canary Cry Radio has, has edified you, or entertained you, or or lifted you up in any way, um, and you feel like you want to support us financially, so we can keep the lights on and keep the our internet connected and things like that. You can go to canarycryradio.com to the support tab and uh, sign up for that, and you'll receive a metal uh, shockproof, waterproof USB drive with the first hundred episodes of Canary Cry Radio with a music album handpicked by Gons and all sorts of other little goodies on there. So go do that. So there we go. We're continuing on after episode 100. And so make sure to tune in next time to Canary Cry Radio. But until then, Think outside the cage.